1 Corinthians in chapter 15, page 1023. Well, actually, 22 and 23. 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. Before I uh, read the scriptures and preach the word of God, let me say thank you again for inviting me to come and preach and be part of this special day. I certainly do appreciate it. I'm very thankful. I stand back there and observe things rather than participate sometimes and observe a growing relationship between Maidenbauer and the church here in Belvedere. I'm very glad to see people like Tom and Jeremy and our friends in Broadstairs and uh, down in Bethesden uh, working together. Every pastor needs good friends outside of the own congregation. And I think these four men... Uh, not quite the same ages, are you? But you're, you're roughly, <laughs> roughly together. But uh, you know, it is good to see them meeting together and knowing that they draw strength and encouragement from one another. Of course, uh, all of those are involved in this, rooted and grounded. And I know some of you have really profited from attending those meetings. So it is a joy for me to be here with my wife. Uh, as I said this morning, it's the first time we've actually been here. Uh, we've been living 40 miles away from you for nearly 50 years. So, but here we are. We're thankful. Let's turn to God's Word now. 1 Corinthians 15. I'll read the opening uh, four verses and then from verse 12. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, and in which you stand. By which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the Twelve, and after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren. And he goes on to give these resurrection appearances. Coming down to verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we have found false witnesses of God. Because we have testified of God that he has raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up. And in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In this life only we have hope in Christ. We are of all men the most, most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Afterward, those who are Christ's. 
that is coming. I'd like to read the entire chapter, but uh, that I think would extend things rather uh, too long. But let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you that you've given us your holy word to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And we pray, our God, that our faith in Christ may be strong this night and strengthened as we consider who he is and what he has done in being raised from the dead. Help us and bless us, we pray now, by your Holy Spirit. Amen. I want to consider particularly verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Some while ago, and I can't remember why I did this, but some while ago I was searching a website on the internet about uncertainty. Strange thing to do. When I read what was on that website, I found myself laughing out loud and then weeping. The website said, embrace uncertainty as part of your life. Certainty about anything is something that is insipid. Life is all about change, all about adapting, being unsure what will happen to you. Now, of course, there are lots of things we don't know. I can't tell you how tomorrow will fall out. But is everything in that category of uncertainty? This website was saying there is nothing you can be certain about in this life at all. And you have to say, is that where 200 years or so of scepticism has brought us since what is called the Enlightenment? That's a misnomer. It was not a bringer of light, it was a bringer of darkness and of sorrow of the seeds of scepticism, deep-seated unbelief and scepticism in our world. Because that scepticism calls into question everything the Bible says. And it's there in the Bible that you find certainty. And we will certainly be finding certainty about Christ this evening as we consider 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20. Here are the facts of the gospel. Here are the effects of the gospel. Here are the promises of God. We are looking again at God's gospel. And the one thing about the Bible is it claims and it is the very word of God. God breathed. God breathed, God's words breathed out and therefore true and reliable. And all our hopes and all our certainties are based upon the truthfulness and the wisdom and the power of God found in the scriptures and coming to expression in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can speak with certainty about what it is to trust in God, to have faith in God. We go back to the Old Testament. Adam and Eve had faith and trust in God. Noah certainly did. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, all the prophets. 
I've been reading through Daniel. I'm staggered at his faith and his confidence in God with his three friends. But this gospel, it is soaked in truth and in certainty. Adoniram Judson, who went to what is now Myanmar, was Burma in the days when he was an American, and he went as a missionary to Myanmar, and he said, my future is as bright as the promises of God. Can you say that? My future is as bright as the promises of God. Well, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as we found in Paul's letter writing to the Galatians, there's an error, a serious departure from the truth. There are some who are saying, there is no resurrection from the dead. There is no resurrection. And Paul is having to deal with that head on. And he answers that question and that objection very clearly. And we're going to look at three things, three certainties concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ, focusing on verse 20. Paul is going to explain and he's going to contradict these false teachers. And there are lots of people today, let me remind you, who do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The man in the street, so-called, the woman in the street, shrug their shoulders. I spoke this week for two hours with a man in a cafe in London. Um, I've gone to meet him about something else, and he had some questions he wanted to ask me. He knows that I've been a pastor and a Christian. He said, well, I've read the Bible through four times. I believe in God. And I conversation came round and, uh, to, to Christ's his death and his resurrection. And I could see the crease on his brow. Resurrection. Well, he said, um, wasn't Christ wrapped in a cloth of myrrh? I'm trying to wrap my brains. I know there were spices, but I'm not sure that that is actually in the scriptures. He said, well, myrrh was a painkiller. So that suggests then that Christ never actually died and never needed to be raised from the dead. I never heard that particular way of explaining, but basically he was denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that was a fanciful denial, which I've never heard before. But you will find the resurrection denied in so many different ways. But here are three certainties. The first is this. The Lord Jesus Christ remains alive following his resurrection from the dead. And I put it that way quite deliberately. I'm not just saying that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And that happened, you know, 2,000 years ago. What I'm emphasizing is, what Paul is emphasizing here, I believe, the Lord Jesus Christ remains alive. That's a reality. Amen. Following his resurrection. He says in verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead. That is real. It is logical in terms of what he has been, the way he has been arguing because he said, look, I'm giving you a summary of the gospel that I have preached and you have believed. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. And on the third day he rose again from the dead according to the scriptures. 
These are things of first, of primary, of central importance. Take these things away and you haven't got a gospel. And he spells out the implications of what would happen if you follow the false teachers who say there is no resurrection. There are six ifs in verses 12 to verses 19. If it is the case then that there is no resurrection from the dead, there are serious consequences. Christ is not risen. Preaching then is empty and vain. Your faith likewise is empty and vain. It has no content. We have nothing to say, nothing really substantial and certain to believe. And he said, we who are apostles, people like me who have seen, who claim to have seen the risen Christ, he said, we're false witnesses. We're telling you a pack of lies, basically, when we say that Christ is risen from the dead. And if the dead then don't rise, and he's not talking about Christ now, he's talking about other believers in Christ. If the dead don't rise, then what's the point of faith? It's futile. And worse still, we remain in our sins. There's no answer to that question. And then he says, well, those then who've already died, they've perished. That's it. People say, when you're dead, you're done for. They don't believe in a life after death. And that's essentially what Paul is saying. If you don't believe in the resurrection, well then, that's it. You've perished. And Paul then says, we are of all men the most pitiable, if that is the case. Because we've been totally deceived. We are fools. And there is no gospel. It's fantasy. It's delusion. It's just speculation. It's a hope that will be snuffed out and vanquished then when we come to die. Paul says, no more ifs. But now Christ is risen from the dead. Not simply that he rose from the dead on the third day. He is risen. He is alive. He was seen by many witnesses before he ascended. But he is risen. He is permanently alive. The scriptures speak in a figurative way and say he is seated at the right hand of his father. That is a place of authority, a place of power, a place of privilege, of honour. Christ is alive. He is a king upon his throne. He is reigning with his father. All power has been given to him. And that power has not diminished in 2,000 years. And Christ is the same Christ who rose from the dead, seated there at the right hand of the Father. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is not an incidental truth. It is not something to remember just occasionally, once a year at Easter, or on other occasions. It is fundamental to the gospel because the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the vindication of Christ by his Father. It is unashamedly supernatural. It contradicts all the sceptical views that prevail in this secular world and secular age. But notwithstanding that, we, 
maintain, yes, God raised his son from the dead. That is the only explanation we have. And we are sure, we are certain. That is Paul. That's what he is saying here. And by doing so, by raising his son from the dead, God ushers in a whole new age, a hope beyond all human expectations. The beginning of a new dawn, the beginning of a, a new humanity. But you say, well, wait a moment, weren't some people raised from the dead before Christ died and was buried and he was raised from the dead? What about them? Well, he raised Jairus' daughter, he raised the widow of Nain's son, he raised Lazarus from the dead. But all of those died again. They've been buried. They're not alive now. Jesus is the only one who died and is alive today, now. He's never, did, never died again. He didn't see corruption. That's what our Bibles tell us. We read in Romans of chapter 1 that the death of Jesus Christ, followed then by his resurrection, is on a different scale altogether. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 3, Again, he's speaking about this gospel of God. Verse 3, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Now it does not mean that he became the Son of God when he was raised from the dead. He always was the Son of God. In addition, he became a man. But when he rose from the dead, he entered into a new phase, as it were, of his existence, of his life. Because now he is the exalted Lord. He is the King. He has a position of authority and power and glory that has been bestowed upon him. And that new phase is linked then to the preaching of the gospel to both Jew and Gentile, to go into all the nations of the world. And we've been embraced as a consequence of that great declaration. So we need this evening to lift up our eyes and see the risen, living, powerful Son of God, Jesus Christ, alive, having been raised from the dead. And we come then with faith. This is a certainty to be believed and grasped with both our hands, with our minds and with our hearts. Whatever people may say of us and whatever they think about us, whatever scorn they may pour upon us, this is what God has revealed in Holy Scripture. It is sure, it is certain, Jesus Christ is alive. And we come then with faith and adoring wonder. Conscious conscious that we only understand these things because they are in the word of God and the spirit of God has opened our eyes to see something of the glory of our Saviour mm. Paul doesn't stop there he's not content merely to declare that he wants us to understand. He wants us to have a strong faith in this risen cross. For he goes on secondly and says, See him. See this Lord Jesus Christ alive now. See him as the first fruits of the resurrection. 
the first fruits of the resurrection. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Those who have fallen asleep are those believers who have died. They've been buried. What's happened to them? What good happened to them? Have they been separated from Christ? No. They have fallen asleep. That's not a soul sleep. Because they died joined to Jesus Christ. Paul writes to Thessalonians about those who fall asleep in Jesus. When a believer dies, when you as a Christian man or woman come to the point of death, you fall asleep in Jesus. That's a very tender, moving picture. Imagine a mother with a crying babe in her arms. The baby's restless. And she gently rocks that baby in the eyes finally close and the crying and the distress goes. The baby falls asleep in the arms of his mother. A believer falls asleep in Christ in the same way. It's a picture. It's a beautiful picture. But it is true. Those who die believing in Jesus die safely. They die securely. They are joined to He cares for each one. He takes them, as it were, into his own strong arms. Now Paul is dealing here with those who have fallen asleep in Christ. He's not giving a picture here of the whole course of events that will take place when Jesus Christ returns in glory. He's only dealing with those who have trusted in Christ. I need to say that because someone may draw the wrong conclusion. Well, is that true then for everybody? Maybe that's true for me, but I'm not really believing in Christ. No. It's those who have believed and trusted in Christ. Those who fall asleep. He's not dealing here with the general resurrection when Jesus will separate the sheep, those are his people, from the goats or the wheat, from the tares, there will be a judgment of the wicked on that day. But we're not talking here, Paul isn't talking here about the judgment of those who are not in Christ. He's talking about what will happen to those who are joined to Christ, those who die. Because that includes us. When we die, we fall asleep in Jesus. Unless Jesus Christ comes, that will be true for all of us. And what is he saying? Christ is the first fruits. And what are the first fruits? What is the first sheaf of the harvest? The first in gathering of the corn, the wheat, or whatever it is. And it foreshadows and pledges the whole harvest. It's like a down payment before you get the full thing. If you go back to the Old Testament, that's where the image comes from. Leviticus chapter 23, uh, they, the first fruits would be gathered in. They would be offered as a thank offering to, to the Lord. 
They were consecrated then to God. The same word is used in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians. Verse 15, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus. That is the first fruits of Achaia. He was one of the first to believe in Achaia. But there were others who came. The harvest in Achaia. What Paul is saying now, Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection harvest. But there's a full harvest yet to come. And who will that full harvest comprise of? Who will it be made up of? Those who have fallen asleep in Jesus or those who are still alive when he returns, but they have believed in him. There's an inseparable link. Listen to what the Paul says. He goes on to explain in verses 21 and 22. Adam brought in death. As in Adam all died. Even so, in Christ, all shall be made alive. That is, all those who have believed in Christ will be made alive. And then he says in verse 20, 23, sorry, I, I missed that out, I missed verse 21 out. Since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. And then what logically follows, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Christ then became the first fruits of the resurrection. When he died and he rose then from the dead, he was the first fruits. And because there is a harvest to come, then that harvest is comprised of all who believe in trust in Jesus Christ. That happened the very moment on the third day when he rose from the dead. It's not some point in the future. The very fact of his resurrection made him the first fruits of every single one who will be raised then from the dead as he was raised from the dead. Now if you step back from that for a moment, that is quite staggering. But it is certain, absolutely certain. Did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? Yes, he said. Will I rise from the dead if I am trusting in Christ? Yes. There is an inseparable, logical link. It must happen. It can't not happen. Because you're joined to Christ. And Christ is the first fruits. And you're the harvest the wildest. When I think about that, I can scarcely believe it. But I do believe it, and I increasingly believe it because it's here in the Word of God. And that means thirdly, quite naturally, then we follow on and say, you who believe then on the Lord Jesus Christ, you too will be, must be raised from the dead. That is the certainty. Jesus is alive, following his resurrection permanently. He is the first fruits. Therefore, you will and you must be raised from the dead because you trust in Christ.
Paul says, look, there is order in this matter. That is what he says in verse 23. Each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Afterward, those who are Christ's at his coming. Now that word order is a military term. Soldiers have their place, they have their rank, they have their position. Determined by their commanding officer. Well, here is the order. God ordained order. Christ, and then those who are his. And it is inevitable. It is absolutely certain. Our resurrection then must follow his. At his coming. It's all one and the same crop. Christ and those who belong to him. It's not a different harvest. It's the one harvest that Christ has the first place. He's the first place. You see, at this point, when Christ returns, and when he raises us up to be with him and like him, at that point, sin, death, will be banished. There will be a new heavens. There will be a new earth. There will be no more death, no more pain, no more sorrow. Every tear will be wiped away from our eyes. Faith, grasping hold then of Christ, says, one day I will have a resurrection body like that of my Lord Jesus Christ. That's the hope that is set out for us in the gospel. That hope ought to issue in a joyful anticipation, a joyful expectation. This is not a dream, this is not a fantasy, this is reality. Has Christ been raised from the dead? Yes. Will I be raised from the dead? Yes. How will that happen? I can't give you all the details, but Paul gives us some clues. In verse 45, for example, so it is written... The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. We're dead. You've returned to dust. You're there in the grave. Ah, no. That isn't something that Christ can't overcome. He's a life-giving spirit. Maybe that goes back to Genesis. When God breathed into the nostrils of man, he became a living being. And Christ was active there on that day. He's the creator. This is something that he can do. It's not beyond him. Simply because you've been laid in the ground and you've returned to dust. No, he's a life-giving spirit. Verse 49. As we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we must also bear the image of the heavenly man. Verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. This corruption must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. And when this corruption is put on incorruption, this mortal is put on immortality. Then shall we be brought to pass the same 
that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. Amen. Whose victory? Christ's. When he rose from the dead, this is what he has been working for and is waiting for and will certainly accomplish. You're still very aware of sin, even if you are a Christian. You're very aware, some more than others, because you're getting old. You're aware that you just died, and as Christ returns. And sometimes that sends more than a cold chill down our spines. And frighten us. And sometimes our faith is rather weak, and we tremble. We're troubled. What kind of salvation would it be if death, our death, if we were swallowed up by it? And that was it. What kind of salvation would that actually be? Do we not say that Jesus died for our sins? Do we not say that Jesus destroyed the power of the serpent, Satan? Do we not say that he destroyed the power of death? Well, if we die, Christ does not raise us from the dead. What, what kind of salvation is that? It would run contrary to everything we have in our Bibles. It would run contrary to the promises of Christ. In John chapter 6, we have these words in verse 39 to 40, first of all. This is the will of the Father who sent me. But of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. In John chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus says, I give my sheep eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. You fell asleep in the arms of Jesus. No one can take you out of those arms. They're powerful. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father Oh, you say, but my faith is weak. There are others who have much stronger faith in the face of death. And you may be fearful and saying to yourself, well, I, what if I don't persevere? What if I don't hold fast? What if I begin to turn away? What if I begin to slip and slide? My faith is weak. What do I say to you? Look unto Christ. It wasn't faith that died for you on the cross. It wasn't faith that came out of that grave. It was Christ. And the weakest believer is as firmly secure as the strongest. Why? Because Christ is the first fruits. Your hope is in Christ, not in your faith, not in your trust. It will be weak, it will waver, it will wobble. But there is nothing of that kind of thing in Christ. He remains the very same. Mm. 
Let me put it this way. Let me give you another illustration. You are aware that in every city in uh, Europe went through the two world wars. There is a tomb to an unknown, the unknown soldier. And uh, there is a phrase that is sometimes used. Known unto God. Don't know who they are. Well, supposing, as it were, when we die, we're fearful that we'll just, just be left on a battlefield. Our bodies won't be buried. We'll just be left and ignored. And... Is that possible? Is that really possible? Is that how Christ deals with those for whom he laid down his life? Will he leave his children, his sons, purchased with his own precious blood? Will he leave them scattered as it were on the face of the earth? If you die believing in Christ, you fall asleep in Jesus. Whatever the circumstances may be. There's no one who is a Christian of whom it can be said it's the tomb, as it were, of an unknown person. He knows you by name. Your names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Every shepherd in the Middle East had a name for his sheep. He knew them by name. He knew their personalities. He knew their character. He knew their tendencies, their weaknesses. My friends, he knows you. You're one of his sheep. It's impossible for him to leave you and abandon you in this world. You are known unto him and loved by him having been purchased with his own precious blood. He will never abandon you. You are joined to him for time and for eternity. He has taken responsibility for you. He has loved you and he will care for you and you therefore may have confidence in him and only in him. Paul can write to the Philippians. And he can say this in verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven. From which we also eagerly wait for the Saviour, our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the first fruits. We're waiting for him. And what will he do? He will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Ask yourself the question in order to answer any doubts and fears. If he has been raised from the dead, if he is now seated at the right hand of his Father, if all power and authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth, how is it then that he will not raise you from the dead? It would be a contradiction, wouldn't it? An absolute contradiction. He'd say, what a miserable saviour if he walks and abandons you. He's not a miserable saviour. He's a glorious redeemer. A wonderful redeemer. And our hope is this, that he will transform us. One day, you will have a body like that of Christ. 
I can say those words, but I can scarcely believe what it will be like. It's true. It's certain. It's absolutely certain. And I ask you then this evening, those of you who profess to be joined to Jesus Christ by faith, do you believe these three things that we've focused on this evening? Christ is alive and Christ is the first fruits. And you will be part of that harvest when he returns in glory. Are you persuaded? Is that the sum and substance of your faith and of your hope in Christ? The world may laugh at you and scoff at you. Pie in the sky, but you die. That nonsense. Well, let them scoff. We sorrow over those who scoff in school. They will die. And they will die still in their sins. What Paul says of those in verse 17 who say there is no resurrection, they are still in their sins. My friends, that is the worst way to die. Still in your sins. Some of you may have heard of a man called Peter Jeffrey. My wife and I knew him well. He's now in glory with Christ. But Peter Jeffrey was a very effective evangelist. He once dropped in at a young people's meeting and they were talking. Um, as teenagers do, they were going into gory details, and I'm not going to go into gory details. What is the worst way to die? And he listened to them. And they were coming up with some horrible stories. He said, Stop. Let me tell you. The worst way to die is to die still in your sin. Is there someone who is not in Christ here this evening? Young, older, who may not have been coming to this church very long, you may have been coming for many years. But if you are not joined to Christ, then my friend, you are still in your sins. You see, if you are in Christ, and you are able to say, yes, I believe these things, I'm persuaded of these things, I'm convinced of these things, then happy are you. You are bound in faith, you are bound in love and hope and confidence. But what can I say to you if you have not embraced Christ, if you have not come to Christ? You are helpless, you are hopeless. It's a hopeless case. You cannot say Yourselves. The future is dark. The future is bleak for you because all that awaits you is the fearful judgment of God. And that leaves me trembling. And it leaves me sorrowful to think there might be someone here, sitting here hearing the gospel being preached, having Christ freely offered to them, yet, no, you're pushing him back, you're pushing him away. Do you really want to die in your sins and face the fearful judgment of God? Hell. Darkness. Utter darkness. What I'm saying to you tonight is not a lie. 
What I'm saying to you about Jesus is not a lie. What I'm saying to you about the resurrection is not a lie. What I'm saying to you about the judgment of God and remaining in your sins, that is not a lie either. The same Bible that declares Jesus has been raised from the dead is the same Bible, the same God who declares if you die in your sin, that is the most terrible state to be in. Because it means after death, judgment. After death, judgment of God. You in your sin. Right now you might protest. You won't be able to protest on that day. One gaze from the holy face of God will be enough to condemn you. You'll fall down and call upon the rocks and the hills to cover you from the wrath of God and from the wrath of the Lamb. I said to you, children, boys and girls, you're not too young. You're not too young to trust in Christ. Have you cried to Him for mercy? Have you cried out to Him to come to your aid, to save you, to wash you clean from all your sin? from every spot and from every stain. Do you know what it is then with sorrow to cast yourself upon God and His mercy? Sorrow because you've sinned against Him. You say, well, then I'm too, I'm too bad to come. No. Jesus receives sinners. He saves sinners. No one is ever too bad. No one is too evil. No one is too wicked come to Christ. He is the Savior. The absolute Savior of sinners. You have a tongue in your mouth. Use it to cry to God to have mercy upon you. I've never spoken to anyone who said they cried to God for mercy. And he turned to death. God isn't like that. Remember blind Bartimaeus? In the crowd. Son of David, have mercy upon me. Sometimes God has, and Christ has mercy upon people who can't even do that. There was a man who was mute, a man who was blind, who was in a helpless state and condition. And Christ took him to one side, took him away from the crowd. He healed him. He restored him. Going back to Bartimaeus. Jesus actually said to Bartimaeus, What is it you want? What, 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 what can I do for you? My sight. My sight. And Jesus stands here this evening and says, What is it you want me to do for you? Say to him, My sin. Take it away. Take it away. Wash me in your precious blood so that I may be clean. So that I may be pure. So that I may be delivered from my sins, from its guilt, and from its power. My friends, there is a real hope, a real certainty. In our congregation, there are two ladies who've had serious cancers. Now, I've been suffering from prostate cancer 
that thankfully is a, a cancer that can be often cured quite, I won't say easily, it's not the right word. The past few months have not been pleasant, but we have two ladies in our church. One has uh, lung cancer, and the other has had, uh, what's it, bowel cancer, sorry, yes. My wife spoke to the lady who has lung cancer. They told her, Jane, we cannot cure your cancer. We can ameliorate, we can give you some measure of uh, calm and we can begin to, to treat it, but we cannot cure it. And I spoke to my, this lady, Jane. She said, well, but you have a hope. Amen to that, she said. That was her immediate response. Jane doesn't say much. She's been a Christian now for about 30 plus years. She's the only Christian in her family. When Jane says something, you know she means what she says. Amen to that. Can you say amen to what you've heard this evening? If so, happy are you. Blessed are you. That hope of glory is yours. May we all be able to say Amen to that. Amen.